Please take your Bible and turn with me to Peter's first epistle, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now, for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." The Lord bless that reading from his precious word for his own name's sake. Would you bow your head with me for a moment, please? Let's seek the Lord together. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray, we ask, we plead with thee to give us the Holy Ghost, filling, controlling our words, our feelings, our thoughts. Grant, Lord, to shut us in with thyself. Take away the wandering thoughts. Take away tiredness from the body. May we have ears that are wide open, alert, able to hear the still, small voice of the Spirit speaking through his word. We pray that it will be a word that is that comes with richness to our souls. It will be a, a word that will feed the flock, strengthening them for the days that lie ahead. Only thou dost know what those days will bring. But we know our God that whatever they bring, we have in thee and in thy word all that pertains to life and godliness. So now we pray, speak through thy truth for Christ's sake. Amen and amen. This section in 1 Peter chapter 1 deals with the subject of rejoicing in hard times. Really hard times. 
The believers to whom Peter wrote were certainly going through them, times that you and I have never had to go through. However hard they've been, nothing like this. It was a day of great persecution for these Christians who were suffering very deeply just because they were Christians. That was what they were guilty of, nothing else, just because they were Christians. I was struck by the title of an op-ed piece that I read a number of years ago. It was, How Long Will I Be Allowed to Remain a Christian? How long will I be allowed to remain a Christian? The author wrote in that article of the ever-increasing attack upon Christians in America. Not Christians in Muslim countries, but in America. Whether or not the writer was a true believer, I don't know. There are many individual churches and groups and organizations that take the name Christian, but when you examine them in the light of Scripture, you find out they're not really Christians at all, just a name. But when it comes to this matter of the, the great tribulation, the great persecution, that is, that is coming, and especially the persecution that Satan will unleash on God's people, it won't matter if they're Christian in name only. They will all be lumped together, whether two believers or not. If they just take the name Christian, they're going to be in his crosshairs. They'll all be treated the same, whether they are true or false. And this article described how Christianity is being, I quote, mocked, belittled, smeared, and attacked on a daily basis. He gave a few examples of the assault being made on those who profess to be Christians. I quote again from the article, a high school, a high school football coach is fired for taking a knee in prayer. A preacher, or sorry, a Marine is cursed at and then court-martialed for not removing a Bible verse from her computer. A teacher is fired for giving a Bible to a student who requested it, requested it. Another Bible verse posted by sailors in a military hospital is labeled extremism. That's in America. We he went on to say, if, if you are a practicing Christian in the United States and open about it, you, your congregation, and your organization will become a target of some sort. It is only a matter of time. It was his next statement that reminded me of what we're looking at here in First Peter. He wrote, ironically, in some very real and ominous ways, it's as if we are being transported back to ancient Rome. That's what was happening to Christians in Peter's day. Peter said in the second chapter of his first epistle, verse 12, that the Gentiles, I quote now, speak against you as evildoers. And we're hearing that. 
verse 19, you find that they were, quote, suffering wrongfully. In the next chapter, verse 9, Peter shows that they were being reviled. That word railings means revilings. In verse 14, they were suffering, suffering for righteousness' sake. And I say those days are returning at breakneck speed. It's not a matter of if they're going to come. They are here now. It's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. But you don't have to fast forward to the coming tribulation and the coming persecution upon God's people to understand what it is to go through hard times and to feel the sorrow that hard times bring. The people of God have always been under attack from the devil and the world and the flesh. When sin entered this world, so did sorrow and suffering and trouble and fear and gloom and depression. That's the stark reason for hard times. If sin had not entered, there would be no hard times. There would be no sorrow. There would be no suffering. There would be no persecution. It's not just the ordinary Christians of Peter's day who are going through extraordinary difficulties. It's the ordinary Christians of our day as well. But the Spirit's focus in this book is not the hard times. The Spirit's focus is actually the Christian can rejoice in hard times. That's the focus of the Holy Ghost as Peter develops this epistle on suffering. And that's what you find in verse 6. Yes, they were facing manifold temptations. The word means trials, all kinds of trials. But Peter said that they were greatly rejoicing in spite of that. Peter writes to believers who were going through difficult days to show them, to show them just how to rejoice in hard times. And that's something you have to learn to do. One of the reasons he gives is that we can rejoice in hard times back in the verses 3 and 4 is because nothing ever is going to change the fact that we are the children of God. We have been begotten again into a life living, living, lively hope, but by our Heavenly Father, verse 3. And as his children, we have an inheritance, all the blessedness that is going to come with this eternal state of glory, we can rejoice because this inheritance is a sure matter as the throne of God is sure, reserved in heaven for us. Verse 4. So in spite of how, how bad it gets, how much trouble comes through the attacks of the world, of Satan's armies, we can rejoice in the fact that we'll always be the children of God and all the privileges that come along with that. 
But that, that's not the only thing that Peter points out as a way of rejoicing in the midst of hard times. Strange as it may seem, the apostle actually shows that the trying of our faith, the testing of our faith through trials is one of the things that God uses to teach us, to enable us how to rejoice when things are really hard and rough. It's, it's why our faith needs to be tried by hard times, why our faith needs to be tried by hard times that I want to take up this evening with the Lord's help to show you just how the hard times, the, the manifold trials, the fiery trials can and they will become actual sources of rejoicing and not simply sources of repining and weeping and despondency and depression. Hard times, let me say, are not just a reality of the Christian life. They are an absolute necessity of the Christian's life. Peter says in verse 6, Now for a season, if need be, those words are worth underlining in my book, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So I want you to take special note of what Peter is actually saying in that verse. It's true that the trials and troubles that come into the life of the child of God are so necessary to our faith. That is true. No denying that. We need them. But Peter is saying something more here. He is actually saying that the heaviness that comes from the trials is necessary. The heaviness that comes from the trials is necessary for us. If need be. If need be, ye are in heaviness. If it's necessary, you're in heaviness. Now, if God determines something is necessary for his people, then it's for their good. He only determines that which is good for us. So if it's necessary that we experience heaviness because of the trials, it's something in which we can actually find comfort and encouragement. How often do you look at hard times in that light? How often do you look at the actual heaviness that comes through the hard times as a source of encouragement. Hmm? You see, hard times are hard because of how they make us feel. These Christians were in great heaviness because of the trials they were facing and they needed it. They needed to feel the heaviness. We think, do we not, that if we could just be calm when our faith is tested by heavy trials and not be in heaviness of heart, it would be so much better. In fact, 
we live in such a way that we try to avoid anything and everything that would ruin our happy day. And we forget that the Lord finds it necessary to send the hard times so that we will feel the heaviness and learn from it as a source of actual rejoicing. Heaviness is a word that comes from another word that speaks of sorrow, of grief, of deep distress. That's what the word means. The heart is heavy with grief, heavy with sorrow, heavy with distress. It describes a Christian who sinks in his spirit to despondency, who feels heavily oppressed and his sorrow has sunk him into deep depression. And what Peter is saying here, that not only is the, the, the trying of our faith, the testing of our faith necessary, but sometimes it's, it's needful that the heaviness that comes with it reaches us. We need to feel, we need to feel the sorrow, we need to feel the grief, we need to feel the pain. It's a good thing. Doesn't that sound strange to the human ear? We, we, we want to avoid it at all costs. I can assure you that Pastor Hamilton is going through some very dark and deep waters. The first year is extremely hard after you lose your spouse of many years. You would never ever wish it upon someone. But it comes by the Lord's appointment and it's necessary. Why? Would such a thing be needful? And how would such heaviness actually be a source of encouragement and comfort for us? First, three things I want to leave with you. The heaviness is needful because it is part of us being able to enter into Christ's sufferings. That's something the Lord wants us to do, to actually enter into Christ's sufferings. We know that as, as God's elect, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's a fact. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul states that the Holy Spirit is indeed changing us into that same image from glory to glory. And we like to think about that transformation process on only one level, and that is likeness in holiness to Christ. That we act like Him, that we think like Him, that we talk like Him, that we walk like Him. That's what we think about being transformed into His image, being like the Lord. 
And it was Paul who said in Philippians chapter 3 that he pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And you read that chapter carefully, you'll find that that call for the high calling is perfect likeness to Christ. That's what it's about. I want to be just like him. And that's, that's the ultimate end, isn't it? When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Perfect conformity to Jesus Christ. That thing for which we long will be given to us one day when we see the Lord. But, you remember it was the Apostle Paul, while saying he counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, he went on to say that he wanted to, to suffer the loss of all things that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. It's one thing to read that. It's something else to honestly say, honestly, I want to enter into the sufferings of my Savior. I want to know something of the heaviness of heart that he felt for my sin. I want to be, a. that's what the word fellowship means a part of. I want to be a part of that. So dismiss the notion, dismiss the notion that all we should be seeking for is happy days, easy days. The Lord was persecuted constantly all during his earthly ministry. He came into his own and his own received him not. He was accused of being a liar, a charlatan, an imposter, who falsely claimed to be the Son of God in spite of all the miracles that he did. His own disciples behaved so worldly and so foolishly at times, so slow to believe and so slow to learn. The devil was always attacking him. Sometimes directly, sometimes through his army. But never ever do you read once during his earthly ministry that he was in heaviness because of it. With the exception of one time. Mark 14, Christ began to be very heavy. There's our word. In that heaviness, he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. As far as we can tell, he never experienced that until now. Can you imagine what that is like the first time to have a heart that is so heavy, filled with exceeding sorrow that he felt he was going to die from it? It was that heaviness that he wrestled with his father in prayer and said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It seemed unbearable 
I know without any doubt that Jesus can sympathize with you and me when we feel heavy in heart. He'll never ever go through that again, but he has never ever forgotten it. Never will. He remember what he went through. Perfectly remember it. He'll remember that heart weighed down with grief. The unbearableness of it all. That he understands the prayer, if it be possible, that this cup pass from me. Lord, if it's possible, take this heaviness away. He understood the kind of sorrow that leaves you feeling you would just rather be dead than alive. Because you feel you can't bear it. But I also know that I'm going to understand his sorrow. His sorrow caused by my sin a little bit better and become like him a little bit more as I experienced heaviness in my hard times. I get a little taste of what his heavy heart was like. And I want to be like him in that as well. I will understand a little bit better what he went through for me. Secondly, this heaviness is needful because it's in the midst of our sorrow that we learn things about the Lord we would never and could never learn otherwise. In the midst of the heaviness, you learn things about the Lord that you would not learn anywhere else. I think maybe I'll just speak for myself. Too many times when I have sung, Oh, to be like thee, I didn't want this part of it. Oh, I want to be like thee, but I don't want this part of having to feel the suffering like you did. It's one thing to learn something in theory, but another thing to learn it through experience. And we all know that. That's common knowledge. It's, and it's the experience that we want. It's, it's not just the knowledge. It's not just the doctrine. It's not just the theory. We want the experience of it. What, what good is it to learn all we can about the, the, the details and the, the specifications, if I can use that word, for what likeness to Jesus means if we don't actually find the experience of likeness to Jesus in our walk? You, you become a master, a master theologian at the doctrine of sanctification, but what, what good is that if it doesn't actually translate into a, a holy life? If our souls were never brought down into deep sorrow, if we never knew what it was to, like Elijah, sit under a juniper tree and feel hopeless, 
How could we ever come to experience the peace of God that passes all understanding, especially designed for our heaviness? How would you ever know that? How could we ever come to to taste and see that the Lord is good, but that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. If there was no trouble, if there was no distress, if there was no deep grief, how do you learn about that without having to go through it? You don't. It's just head knowledge. It's just theory. It's just empty talk. It's talk, 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 talk. And you may be able to take talk up a good storm, but brothers and sisters, it's something else when you actually go through it. You've been there and you've done it. And you know what it's about to sit with Elijah under the juniper tree. How would we ever come to know the experience of the truth that all of our doubts and our despondencies and our depression will never move the Lord to cast us off if we've never been in a place of heaviness and watched the Lord just lift us out of it. I think if, if we're honest, you and I would be content to limit our understanding of the Lord as the good shepherd who provides the green grass, who leads us beside the still waters, But how will we ever learn that he's the good shepherd who in the valley of the shadow of death uses his rod and his staff to comfort us if we're never brought into the valley of the shadow of death? It's all theory. I'm saying simply that there are views of God that you get in the valley that you'll never get anywhere else but in the valley. You can read about them, and you can read what others go through, and you can understand their words. You can empathize, but you can't sympathize. Because you've never experienced it. How needful it is that there comes to us, each one, heaviness. It's necessary through manifold trials. The third and final reason. This heaviness is needful because it makes us more useful to help others who are in heaviness. Peter was no stranger to fiery trials and the sorrow and the despondency that it can bring. He wasn't theorizing in this epistle, he was speaking from experience. He had suffered early on for his faith. Remember, he was about to be beheaded, and the Lord delivered him from prison. The same was true of the Apostle Paul. He could write to the church at Rome and at Corinth and Colossae and Thessalonica and at Timothy and speak of suffering and despondency and heaviness and trials without and trials within and manifold temptations. And he also writes of being comforted by God through it all, and that enabled him to, I quote him now, comfort them which are in any trouble 
That word means distress or affliction. Paul realized he gained so much from being brought into very hard times because he could become an able helper to those who were in hard times. That sorrow, that grief, that angst of his soul enabled him to be a far greater help to those than if he had somehow escaped the fiery trial. He could write about that thorn in his flesh that was so painful to him, he prayed for three times God to take it away. But he learned something from all that pain. In the midst of that suffering, I learned that my God is sufficient. And he had to learn that. The Apostle Paul had to learn that that his strength was made perfect in his weakness. So do we. The fact is that as those who have been called by God to comfort one another and to weep with those who weep, if we're going to do what we've been called to do, then we need to experience the heaviness. We need to experience hearts that are weighed down with sorrow. Over the years of Kim's illness, on occasion, there were Christians who were trying to comfort us. What had been a very long-running trial of our faith. But it seems from what they said to us to bring comfort You could tell they've never been in heaviness through manifold trials. They've never sat with Elijah under the juniper tree and wished to die. It appears that they've never had a heart so heavy with grief that it's left them emotionally and spiritually paralyzed. You see, the best ones to lift up the downcast are those who have been downcast themselves. When you have experienced depression, you will be far more sympathetic toward those who are depressed than those who have never entered into that dungeon. We need this heaviness to deliver us from insensitivity and pride and hardness of heart. You hear Christians say when the mourning has gone on for some time, they need just to get over it and move on. tells me something. They've never been there. They are clueless. And they're not comforters. 
Job comes to mind. His comforters, if they had just been, had gone through what he had gone through, you wouldn't have found him so hard-hearted and accusatory. So thank the Lord, brothers and sisters, that he sends heaviness into our lives. I'm not saying you pray for it. But when you and I come into hard times, and you will come into hard times, it is going to happen. Thank the Lord for it. You're in a school of suffering. You're there to learn. Not just about him and about yourself, but you're learning how you can come alongside a brother, a sister, whose heart is heavy. And you can tell them, here's, here's what the Lord showed me. Maybe it'll be a help to you. I was up at a Bible conference in the fall and had dinner one night with a family in the church and another couple in the church. And the other couple, both of them had lost their spouses. One, it was the third spouse they were on because they both died from death, an accident and cancer. It's amazing how you click, how you understand the very things that they bring up, that they went through, you understand. Is that not a good thing? I mean, is, is this not what part of loving the brethren is about? If loving the brethren, being able to draw alongside them and to be able to comfort them and to weep with those who weep? Surely it is. All of this underscores the truth that the source of our joy in the midst of the hard times is not only concerned with how we view our future, Peter writes about that, you know, he does. In the midst of hard times because of this inheritance that's just awaiting us in glory. But, but we can also rejoice in hard times because of how we view the present. And in the case before us just now, it is our rejoicing is linked to how we view our present heaviness, our present sorrow, our present pain. How do we view it? I pray you remember this. You remember this night. Because the hard times are coming. How do you respond? Or just get me out of this. Take this pain away. If needs be, it's necessary. You gain so much from it that you could not gain otherwise. You see, it's not the fiery trial per se that God uses to make us like his son. 
or to show us the things about him we would not otherwise learn or to make us comforters of those who suffer. It's not the fiery trials per se. It's, it's, it's the heaviness, it's the pain, it's the sorrow that he uses to make us the comforters. Isn't that what makes the trial fiery? Isn't that what makes the test fiery? The Holy Spirit did not leave this truth about heaviness. The necessity of this heaviness for all of the Lord's people. For them just to figure it out on propositions of systematic theology. He had Peter write those two Greek words translated, if necessary, so that they would not miss the truth that they were necessary. The sorrows were necessary. Then if the Lord deems the sorrow and this distress a necessary part of my life, then I, I need just to accept them from his hand. Just as much as I would the wonderful, happy blessings that he gives. I would accept them from his hand, believing he only is going to give me that which I need and that which is good for me. He's not designed it to harm you. It's always designed to help you. Henry Light is an author of numerous hymns in our hymn book. Preacher, but had difficult times when he was just a boy. His father was a bad egg always taken up with hunting and fishing from Northern Ireland. Didn't take care of the family, left the wife to do all that, three kids. He got to a place where it was unbearable, he left. Before he left, he, the two oldest boys he sent off to a school, actually near Enniskillen, near the Loch Ern. The mother took the youngest with her. She had to get some income. They didn't understand it all. He was just seven at the time. He's away in some school. Mom somewhere. Never, never writes him. She'd grown sick. And she died. He never knew. She died. He was like John Wesley. He entered the ministry before he was saved. And there came a day, though, when he had that strange warming of heart, and the Lord converted him. It was all because of another minister who was lost like him in the ministry, but lost like him. And on his deathbed, he told him, we have been leading people astray. We've not been telling them the truth. And that man on his deathbed came to Christ and died in the assurance, but it troubled light. He eventually came to the Lord. You know the hymn well. The line reads, man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. 
Life with trials hard may press me. Heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Oh, tis not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me. Oh, twere not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. He got it. He got it. He suffered from lung issues, didn't have the meds in that day, 54 years of age when he died. Abide with me, fast falls, the eventide was written as he watched the sunset toward the last days of his life. He knew he was dying. Not in grief to harm me. That's how it always is, brothers and sisters. So when that trouble comes knocking at your door and that fiery trial just blows up in your life, how are you going to deal with it? Well, it's from the Lord's hand. The heaviness that you're feeling, that you want rid of so quickly, the Lord says, no, you need to feel this. You're going to learn things about yourself and about me and about others that you would not learn otherwise you need it. Isn't that encouraging? That the Lord's actually going to do that to the things which terrify us? How good a God we serve. takes the hard things and does wonderful things in us and through us. God stamp that word on all of our hearts tonight. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek him together. Father in heaven, take thy word tonight, we pray. It's the preaching of the Holy Spirit that makes the difference, not so much that of the clay pot. Give to thy people, thou alone dost know what is before us. We know not what a day may bring forth, but thou dost know. And we pray that thou wilt grow in us That same heart, that same mindset that was found in the saints of bygone days. We need the heaviness at times. We need the joy, no doubt about that, Lord. My, how we need the joy. But thou dost know we also need the heaviness. Save us from rebelling against the hard times from finding fault with others, placing blame, finding fault with thee, always believing. Not only dost give us what we need. So Lord, we bow ourselves before thee. Lead us. In Christ's name, amen and amen.